0: I looked at my team and I said,
1: the timing for this event is not right. It's just not right with what's happened recently, the flare up in Florida. To have a big convention is not the right time. It's uh, really something that for me, I have to protect the American people. That's what I've always done. That's what I always will do. That's what I'm about.
0: That was President Trump Thursday with an announcement that he was dreading to have to make. His cherished convention spectacle in Jacksonville would have to be scrapped after all. It was a painful bow to the stark reality that the coronavirus continues to spread uncontrollably across the South, with the Sunshine State leading the pack, setting new records for cases and deaths. But how will Trump's concession play to a base that has largely dismissed the threat of the virus and for months demanded that restrictions and shutdowns be lifted? We'll discuss with ABC News correspondent John Carl, who has tracked Trump's presidency from the start and now written the new book, Front Row at the Trump Show. And we'll talk to veteran Democratic strategist James Carville about how he sees this fall's election on this episode of Skullduggery. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
2: And I'm Dan Kleidman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
0: So it isn't often that we see the president backing down, reversing course, admitting that what he had previously said no longer stands, but there he was, at the White House, making this stunning announcement that this convention that he was so looking forward to, the big spectacle, giving the speech in front of thousands of cheering, adoring delegates and fans, isn't going to happen after all.
2: I think it's the strongest sign of kind of increasing desperation on Trump's part. It's not the only one, because we have seen him Back down in other ways as well, including wearing a mask after having refused uh, to show himself masked publicly and being very lukewarm about the idea that other Americans ought to wear masks. But he is confronted with some very, very bad math and data suggesting that, you know, he is uh, not only likely to lose the election now we are three months out so a lot of things can change but like at at this moment uh may not just lose but get trounced and you know the question is if he's as desperate as he is and he has to back down the way he does does that does that discourage his base and his whole strategy has been a base strategy from the beginning
0: Look, we'll talk about this with our guests, but I think this is going to hurt him. I think it's going to hurt him badly because, you know, the only thing he has going for him is a fired up base that likes the fact that he shows no weakness, that he defies what the experts say, that he does it on his own. And, you know, they've gotten used to dismissing the virus as a hoax, as being overblown. And here to have Trump back down like this, I think, is going to defuse or deflate a lot of his supporters. Now, he didn't have much choice, given what the numbers are yeah. in Florida. But
2: I agree with you, but I don't think it's just—I don't think it's, it's this episode itself. I think the reason it's going to hurt him— is because it's going to knock him off stride. He is most comfortable, um, and in a way, probably most effective when he is doing everything he he can to to fire up the base in a kind of organic way. What could happen, and I think this would be disastrous for Trump, is when he is criticized for not doing what his base wants, that he's been weak, that's when He's at his most reckless. And so I would look for Trump to hear that criticism, absorb it and and come back with something that, you know, maybe maybe so crazy that it will hurt him uh, just because it's um, you know, it is crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think that in some respects uh The deployment of these armies of camouflaged federal troops into Portland and you know perhaps other and and now other cities to quell the protests to quell the violence was an electoral strategy as we talked about in the last podcast on on Portland. But there was an interesting development uh, this week that didn't get a lot of attention, which is that the Inspector General of the Justice Department, Michael Horowitz, announced that he is going. Going to be uh, launching an investigation into the use of federal troops in Portland and and the dispersal of protesters from Lafayette Square back when the protests started, something we talked quite a bit about when it happened on this podcast. And I think that that's going to make a lot of folks at Justice nervous, possibly even Attorney General Barr. I don't think they want to be the subjects of an inquiry. We know that Horowitz can do some pretty aggressive investigations and uh reach some strong conclusions as he did in the the fisa report which found multiple abuses by the fbi and look horowitz is not going to complete this until after the election, but a lot of people are going to be thinking about their personal legacies. And um, to the extent that this could be a break on Trump getting even more reckless and bold in the use of sending federal troops around the country, um, it could curb something that he would like to do for his political benefit.
2: Now, there is one other investigation that we have talked a lot about on this podcast, but have not heard much news of in recent weeks. And that is the Durham investigation. And the, I think, expectation of a lot of people was that that would drop before the election. Well, we know from previous Durham investigations that he takes a very long time. His reputation is that he is independent and he is not a political actor, but I would love to be a fly on the wall of uh, <laughs> any conversations between Bill Barr and John Durham right yeah. now about the timing of that report, which of course is on you know whether there was foul play in the origins of the of the Russia investigation.
0: Right. Look, uh, we may hear more about that if uh, Barr indeed shows up for the scheduled House Judiciary Committee hearing uh, next week. We'll see. This is Barr has um, been an elusive witness uh, for uh, the Democrats on Capitol Hill, but he did commit to this. And clearly, the Durham report investigation is something that Republican Republicans have been clinging to. I keep an open mind on it. I don't assume from that it's going to be some sort of political document because I don't think John Durham, who's been a career prosecutor, U.S. attorney in Connecticut under uh, both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations, is going to um, willingly serve as Barr's hatchet man. And I'm always open to learning new facts about what was the most consequential investigation of this era. But the clock is running, and if he's going to bring indictments, which is what Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, was suggesting is going to happen, it's got to come soon. Uh, It can't come on the eve of the election. Barr and Durham know that. So, you know, the expectation is that whatever Durham's got, we've got to see, you know, most likely in the next, you know, month to six weeks or so. Otherwise, it's too late. But we will we will see. One other item worth just flagging before we get to the guests, Um, Michael Cohen. He is um, going to be released from prison on uh, furlough, uh, home confinement, but he's free to continue per the order of a federal judge saying that the Justice Department improperly forced him to sign a document pledging he would not write his book. So we may well have a Michael Cohen book uh, before Election Day.
2: So we'll have a Michael Cohen book perhaps before Election Day, but we'll also have Two of President Trump's most, well, in the case of Michael Cohen, erstwhile uh, loyal consigliere's. Um, and in the case of Roger Stone, uh, c- continuing to be his uh, one of his most loyal advisors, both out of prison. I mean, Cohen sprung from prison. Uh, Stone, of course, was pardoned and didn't have to he go to prison. He
0: wasn't pardoned. His sentence, or, sorry, was commuted. his sentence was commuted. So he's exactly, still yeah. a convicted felon, as right. is so- Michael Cohen.
2: And so I think there is the real possibility that there will be a face-off between two convicted felons over the re-election of Donald Trump. Stone has already, I think, indicated that he will be working on President Trump's behalf. Michael Cohen, I think, will be uh, maybe <laughs> maybe uh, campaigning for Joe Biden, certainly will not want to see President Trump re-elected. Uh, that will be, I think, a first in a presidential election where you have two convicted felons going after each other, and campaigning on different sides of, of a presidential election.
0: Yeah, if I were a TV booker, I'd try to get them on together and stage that face-off on the eve of the on, election. On
2: on on Skullduggery. <laughs> yeah. yeah, on it's a little, it's, Yeah, we'll, it's a little uh, it's a little reminiscent of uh, what was that great movie? Uh, the uh, the best of enemies. William F. Buckley and yeah. Gore Vidal yeah. going after each other in the nineteen during the nineteen sixty eight Republican
0: convention. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe that this not. One would maybe have this, not
2: quite as not yeah. quite as high-minded yeah i was gonna say uh, <laughs>
0: i don't think this has the same intellectual firepower as uh, as buckley versus uh, vidal but anyway uh listen we got two great guests uh to talk about this and a lot more so let's get to it we now have with us the legendary james carville Democratic strategist for many, many years, uh, James. Welcome to Skullduggery. Good, I like the name.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I figured you, you would <laughs> better than scumbuggery.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, we get we get our we get a lot of guests just because of the name. But listen, a lot we want to talk about about this election. But I just want to start out by telling my favorite James Carville story. And, uh, you know, we've obviously uh, clashed over the years at various points. But I first met James in 1982. There was a Senate race in Virginia. I was the Richmond Bureau chief for The Washington Post. And the race was between a uh, Republican non-entity, Paul Tribble, And a uh, Democratic non-entity, Dick Davis, who I think was the mayor of Portsmouth, neither one uh, was the uh, sharpest bulb around, and there was a debate. I believe it was in Williamsburg, between Tribble and Davis, and those of us watching the debate saw Davis, uh, he appeared drunk, he was slurring his words, he was stumbling, he was largely incoherent, and it looked like he had essentially been clobbered by this non-entity, Paul Tribble. Carville is sitting in the front row. As soon as the debate ends, he jumps up, he raises his hands. Yes, yes. Like you had just won some big victory. And that was my first lesson in um, Carvillian
1: spin. You remember so, that? Mike, let me tell you the back story. So Bobby Watson, remember him? Oh, yeah. He was the guy. And I said, that's not much of a drunk. He said, well, he went to the tobacco company and Chaco slip, And he had two mm-hmm. glasses of wine. So I went mm-hmm. to the tobacco company, and I said, give me a glass of wine. It was like 16 ounces of wine. <laughs> Gosh, it had two bottles of wine, but only two glasses. Yeah, <laughs> That's, That's a true not... story. And remember Pat Bowell who covered
0: that race with you? Oh, Yeah. 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 Oh, she yeah. Did. She was um, uh, the other uh, post reporter. Uh, yeah. You know, it was a, uh, it yeah. was a tight race. Triple one, by the way, you lost I, that one, yeah. I did. <laughs> right. so, I did. you know, but anyway, we want to talk about uh, this election because uh, one reason we wanted to have you on is because I have been saying for some time that it was not a foregone conclusion <laughs> that Trump's going to end up running for reelection after all given uh, the poll numbers where it's they're looking increasingly as dismal as they possibly can. I'm just looking at real clear politics now. Fox News in Pennsylvania has Biden up 11. In Minnesota, Biden up 13. Quinnipiac in Florida has Biden up 13. And I'm just wondering when you're staring at numbers like that, Is there any possible path that Donald Trump can
1: be reelected? So let's just talk about yesterday. So yesterday he gets a poll that he's down 13 in Florida, a credible poll. Then he gets the Cook report saying the Democrats are now in a commanding position to take back the Senate. This is the second time in 10 days the the Cook report, which to people listening, this is a very judicious people. They don't use words without meaning. The second time in 10 days, they've used the word tsunami to describe what's coming. He had to cancel his convention. The Republicans on the hill in the same day attacked Liz Cheney in AOC. This is not a party that is falling apart. It's a party that's already fallen apart. And Trump is going to have to come to grips with, am I better off saying I'm not running and I'm coming back in twenty twenty four and starting my TV network or getting the living crap beat out of me, which is going to happen and everybody else. I think that they will conclude that you're better off blaming the fake media and Mike Izakoff and the deep state and whoever else, that I'm the most accomplished president of the world and people will be begging me to come back in four years. And I think they're going to include that.
2: So James, we're going to well, I guess I'm going to press you on this because I'm the guy playing devil's advocate on right. this podcast. But before we do, so one thing you, that I you, wonder. You just
0: echo the conventional wisdom. Yeah, that's, right. right? that's, right. that's right. That's right. That's <laughs> right. That's my. That's my, the, my. Yeah. The creative, that's my, creative thinkers. That's here. my role here. <laughs> yeah.
2: But I do want to ask you this, because the tribe that you belong to, that is the Democratic Party, they Democrats are known for being kind of nervous Nellies about uh, these elections and, and getting overly confident. Bedwetters, to use the, fr- uh, the phrase, uh, the David Pluff's phrase. Are right. you at all concerned that if this is the message that you're putting out there, that uh, people, that Democrats will become complacent, that voters won't go to the polls because-
1: right. I, I get this a lot, all right? An army that is on the march, winning battles, is an army with high morale. An army that is in retreat and losing battles yeah. is an army with low morale. And the point here is people actually like to, when they think you're going to win the election, it doesn't make them want to stay home. It makes them want to go out. They want to be part of something. And the logic to me is kind of bass backwards because if you say, look, we're winning these battles, press, press, press. And I think that really excites people. Now there's, I get one more letter from, you know, Daniel Schwartz, Esquire, that says, look, I, I really respect you. My mother loves you, but you're making her very nervous here. Okay, Danny, <laughs> tell your mom it's okay. So I get one and somebody's up African-American, his daughter's just graduated from Georgia Tech and is a, you know, a code writer, Delta. And she says, well, mom, my, my mom is nervous too. And I said, don't worry about it. Tell your mom it's gonna be okay. <laughs> So
0: it seems to me, we talked about this earlier in the podcast, that um, the announcement yesterday of canceling the uh, Jacksonville convention, we all realize why Trump did it. He had no choice with the uh, with the COVID numbers being what they are, but that this is actually going to hurt him even more with his base because it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign he's caving into the experts. And, you know, that enthusiasm factor that he's counting on is not going to, you know, this is not going to play with his
1: hardcore supporters who believe the whole thing is a hoax. So the big news after this election, that's it's all digested from the kind of Ron Brownstein's and David Wasserman's, you know, and it's kind of an election analyst is going to be how poorly Trump did in his base. That That's going to be the story. Yes, the, the suburban women are going to be all over the place. You know, the, the non-white vote is going to be large and enthusiastic. But in, in these counties, I'm going to part of a group. We're spending $90 million in 77 counties just in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And in places that Trump won, some of them, 85-15, He'll win them, but he'll win them six seventy thirty sixty eight thirty two, and that's going to happen because I mean we're spending ninety million dollars. We we've got a pretty good idea what's going on in these counties, and you're going to see it more in the north than you will in the south. But you're going to see it in the south some also. That's going to be the story. But the number to look for is strong leader, because that's always been what propped him up. And when you start seeing and not enough polls ask this, but a couple of Democratic pollsters said we're starting to see a decline in his strong leader number. When you see that, then the people, because what his vote is like is that he grabs their crotch and tells him to bug off, and he doesn't act like a politician, and it irritates him. He owns the Libs. He doesn't do that anymore. The Libs are not even scared of it, and that is going to hurt him culturally. You're exactly right, but always pay attention to a poll that has a strong, you know, give you a list of descriptions, to describe Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Honest Biden, 68 to 30, whatever it is, or, or compassionate or good for race relations. But then you stick in strong leader. That's the one to pay attention to. If that goes, the more that goes down for Trump, the more he's hurt.
2: So James, your theory of the case here though, is that come Labor Day, when Mitch McConnell is looking at um, the poll numbers and seeing that it may be a wipeout in the Senate, that he and Lindsey Graham and Martha McSally and who knows who else are all gonna turn against Trump. And then you'll get the repeat of Hugh Scott and Barry Goldwater going up to Nixon telling him he right. had to res- resign. Um, make that case.
1: There was a story about the caucus and it was one fascinating tidbit. And Ted Cruz said, we ought to let the vulnerable, the senators up for 2020 design this package. Because we gotta try to save them. Ted frickin' Cruz, right? Just let McSally and Corey Gordon and Tillis and Susan Collins and Joni Ernst and Dan Sullivan write a document that they think can save it. Ted Cruz. And those are the little nuggets you see in the story that tell you exactly how panicked they are. And they don't want to die on this hill, but they don't have any choice. And of course they're not gonna be able to separate from Trump. Of course they're not. The, the, the Democrats are going to run 97% of the time you voted for him. to do that in every cycle. And they're stuck with it. They're just stuck. And when Ted Cruz says, let's just turn this over to them and try to save this, because Ted Cruz knows the difference between the majority and minority is, is what Mark Twain says, the difference between the right word and the nearly right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug, right?
0: But just to play, uh, you know, this fantasy out, uh, because I do think it's still, even though I keep talking about it, I still think it's unlikely. But what's the scenario that gets him off the ticket?
1: He just says, Screw it, I'm not going to do it. I've I've done everything I set out to do. I wrote a piece in NBC Think, kind of humorous. Mm -hmm. You should pull it up and read it because it's exactly how I think it's going to end. I think that." He's gonna conclude with Garrett that his brand is worth more resigning than it is getting just destroyed. I mean, when I say destroyed, I mean like 1932 destroyed. I don't, I'm not even talking That's about That's interesting. I,
0: I used the 1932 analogy just the other day in talking to a longtime Republican strategist. I'm saying everybody's comparing this to you know very you know sixty-eight or sixty-four. With COVID. It's looking to me like 1932. Trump is Herbert Hoover presiding over an event of equal magnitude bonus arm to, to is, the
1: Depression. And a bonus arm is in the street in Portland, Chicago. <laughs> yeah. And
0: okay. It's the same
1: the street. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. And he wasn't going to win before this, by the way. He wasn't going to win in February.
0: Well, I don't know about that. I, you know, no, listen, you're the guy who said it's the economy's stupid. And then back in February, the economy was looking pretty good by you any. You know, what, if you go yardstick. back to
1: that whiteboard, Mike, that was the second thing that was on it. The first thing was change versus more the same. This was a 60 percent wrong track number in February, wrong track country in February. People wanted to change them. And, and the, the economy was not working for his people something like 70% of the growth in the United States in counties that Hillary carried, prior to the pandemic. So I don't think he was going to win then. And the third thing on that board was, don't forget health care.
2: Hey, James, but, I wanted to ask you about, I mean, that phrase, you know, if there's any political phrase that like most Americans know, it's the one you coined, it's the economy is stupid, when you mentioned the chalkboard. I guess that was in Clinton headquarters in Arkansas when you wrote that what? up on the, on the board is that still true today or have we kind of sorted ourselves into these like tribes that, you know, polarized tribes that like s- something like the economy can't even, you know, move people in-, in really significant ways any anymore. I just wonder, I mean, you know, right now it's, it's, uh, it's the pandemic stupid and maybe, um, you know, this kind of reckoning with race, but does that phrase still have the same st- kind of strength that it, that it did when you said it the first time?
1: It does, and let me tell you why. In 1992, we're starting to see separation, but we were all kind of part of the same economy, at least 75% of us are. And by 2000, beginning of 2019, there was an economy for metropolitan areas and an economy for everywhere else, right? There was, was real separation between the people that did well and the people that didn't do well. And you can see it in any economic number that you want. So it, it certainly it's important, And it, you know, if the economy does really well, then people will do a little bit better. But most people were not feeling when, in, in, when you would talk about, he talk about how good the economy is, and most people would, would hear people say, well, I don't feel it that much. And, and, you know, remember, he took over a good economy. He took over an economy growing at 2%. He gave $2 trillion worth of tax cuts, decimated every environmental rule, and got the economy to grow at 2.1%. I mean, what bullshit? And that's the greatest economy ever? I mean, th- when you think about the economy, you got to think about the way that someone looks at it. So we're older, and we've got investments, and we see seeing they're going up, and you know, you can look at your 401k, and you say, hey, I saw pretty good. That's 15% of America. And the better you tell people it is, the more they, the more they think you're disconnected.
0: Hey, um, what's this uh, ninety million dollar operation you got going? You were referring to? I'm
1: part of a group called American Bridge, and we're raising ninety million dollars, and we're going to seventy-seven targeted counties in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. You can, I I think, you go to the site, and we run ads, some digital, a a lot of AM radio, do a lot of media consumption studies, and. Our theory is, is and I think we're right, if you cut his margins there, if you if you lose less bad, you change sea level in American politics. And I think it's gonna work. Is this a uh, independent
0: expenditure political action committee or is I, it a 501c4? Yeah, it's,
1: it's a pac In fact, I I I don't want to get into tax <laughs> nomenclature because I could be wrong. Right. But right, I go right. around and I draw Zoom calls now, but I obviously talk to a lot of rich people and say, look, I think this is something. Yeah. That's meritorious. And basically, our donors like the idea. They really like it. Hey, who is um, who's Biden going to pick for his Veep? And do you have a uh, preference? I, I have said publicly, I don't give a shit if he picks Senator Palin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, and look, he has earned the right. The Democratic voters around the United States said, hey, look, we trust you, Joe. And he'll be very responsible on this. I got attacked from somebody this morning. Who doesn't even know any more than I do? Says that he hears it's going to be Susan Rice. I don't know. Everybody hears something. I have no idea. No idea.
2: James, um, speaking of the nineteen thirty-two election, I can't remember how many states uh, FDR won, but I think I think Herbert Hoover won about fifty electoral votes. And, yeah, he and won Pennsylvania. Believe it or not. Yeah. Oh, wow. Really?
1: He won like uh, Rhode Island. He won from New England states. Wow. Those got 97% in South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs>
2: wow. Do you think that um, Biden is going to be able to expand the map in any significant ways? I mean, people talk about Georgia, I, I, Texas.
1: Listen to me. Tennessee might be the most popular state that Trump carries. Tennessee. Look at Ohio. Look, This scandal in Ohio. I mean, this is not some, you know... Louisiana, New Jersey, Chicago-style corruption. This is like a billion dollars. I mean, I mean, they're going to lose Ohio. Florida has now been moved from toss-up to lean down. Texas, you think people in Texas are happy with Republicans? you got to be kidding me. I mean, look around. That's, that's a fact. Tennessee might be his most populous state. Now, well, I don't know if that sticks beyond Trump. I mean, obviously, some of these states are going to revert back to kind of normal partisan behavior, I assume, but I don't know. But that's where we are. Just a little um, uh, historical fact checking here. In
0: 1932, FDR carried 472 electoral votes to 59 for Herbert Hoover. Hoover did indeed carry Pennsylvania, as uh, James pointed out. But that was the only state outside of rock ribbed back then, New England, where he carried Maine, Vermont and New Hampshire.
1: Yeah, so we were pretty close. (laughs)
0: <laughs> there you go, but do you do you see a uh, a landslide of that magnitude this fall?
1: Oh, maybe. I mean, Trump will carry more states than that. I mean, if you he, were, well, he's going to carry Tennessee and Kentucky.
0: Yeah, and the, so- I mean, the and the South. I mean, he'll still carry the Deep South, Alabama, Mississippi. Uh, you know, Missouri. South I
1: thought Jeff Garren had Biden up too in Missouri. Wow. Well, that would. Um... Well, that would be a... Uh, and and, a, a and they're going to change governors. I promise you that. Watch Alaska. Alaska Senate's my favorite race. Uh, Murkowski? Or... No, no, no. The Sullivan seat. Okay. He's he challenged by an independent, but he's like a Angus King, King independent mm-hmm. The caucus of Democrats and named Al Groves. got a hell of a resume, man. His opening spot. The most interesting candidate for the Senate this year is in Louisiana. A guy named Adrian Perkins. Adrian went to West Point. He was the first African-American brigade commander. He had three combat tours of duty. He won the Bronze Star. He went to Harvard Law School. He was elected class president. He came back to Shreveport, beat an incumbent two to one, and he's running for the Senate. Now, I'm telling you, can Adrian win in Louisiana? It's pretty tough. But watch out, because he's coming. He, He is the biggest comer in American politics right now. Adrian Perkins, Mayor Shreveport. You can look it up.
2: Yeah. Well, we've got to okay. look into that. Uh, so Mike mentioned uh, Alabama before, and Trump did just weigh in in that primary where Tommy Tuberville beat Jeff Sessions. Trump was trashing Sessions, and Tuberville completely tied himself to Trump, and he beat Sessions by, you know, 20 points or something. I can't remember. It was, a, it was a huge... So doesn't that suggest that Trump still has that a lot of Republicans are still going to look to Trump to help them win it's, in November. Uh,
1: Alabama. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you're down to making your case in Alabama, <laughs> you, you pretty much <laughs> single back. In, okay. So Doug Jones has something in politics that not everybody wants Few have. He's lucky, right? So Tomoville, He ran against the child molester. It's kind of hard (laughs) to (laughs) beat that. That. Tupperville has kind of three things to worry about. Number one is he talked about how he loves Trump and how he voted for Trump. There is zero evidence that he voted in 2016. None. For anybody. He had a player that raped a co-ed, and he made him sit out a game against Appalachian State. That's what you get for rape. A game against Appalachian State. Then he's hooked up with this scummy hedge fund that people lost a ton of money, his partner went to jail. And there's some document that people are demanding that they see as to how much money people lost. So I don't know. If, I mean, Doug's going to be close.
2: Yeah. Uh, and of course, but, uh, Tuberville didn't, didn't really get pressed on those issues in the no, primary that much. So No,
0: no. And he's going to get pressed a lot. So it seems to me the only real play or hope that Trump could have here is we get to the debates there's going to be three of them Biden's committed and you know they're going to be out there alone for you know whether it's 90 minutes couple hours and um, you know can Biden hold it together and be coherent and not get flustered and not um, you know
1: get tongue tied and not look presidential Let's see who Biden debated, all right? Let's go back and look at the Democratic debate. Bernie Sanders, maybe the most disciplined presidential candidate in history. Elizabeth Warren, no shrinking violence. Fairly high IQ, right? Pete Buttigieg, how many more skilled debaters are there out there than Mayor Pete? Not, Not to mention Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, maybe the best speaker in the Democratic party. I mean, he, he debated some of the most talented people you can imagine on the stage. He actually did very good in the debate right before South Carolina. Look, he's going to do fine. I mean, now, look, can I tell you he has some health emergency? Well, I can't tell you that that's not going to happen. But I can tell you he, he, he's going to do fine. He, he, he totally He's been tested, man, at that primary field that he ran yeah. against with some, some real talented, smart people.
0: Yeah. And look, he, he was okay in some of the debates, in others, he was not uh, as strong as you probably would have- uh, He did get strong. He did get stronger. He get stronger. At as, he was good. Yeah.
1: No, he was better than okay in the South Carolina debate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I covered that debate.
0: Right. All right. Well, listen, um, so just getting back to where we started on the scenario of, you know, <laughs> Trump throwing in the towel, uh, what, uh, what percentage do you give that as uh, uh, ha- happening at this point? Twenty-two point three five. All right, it goes up. Okay, every day. all right. Gonna well, there. I'm, I'm going to give it as twenty-one point six, and uh, well, that's right. pretty.
2: Uh, that's pretty close. And I got to say, uh, James, someone who knows something about strange bedfellow marriages, you know. And I'm seeing a strange bedfellow marriage right here between <laughs> you and Isakoff. I'm telling you. Uh, maybe you guys ought to go. Maybe you ought to go into business together. Maybe a yeah. consulting
1: firm, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> (laughs) All right, guys. (laughs) All right. right, Thanks a lot. That was fun. All right. Thanks.
0: We now have with us Jonathan Carl, Chief White House Correspondent for ABC News and author of the new book, Front Row at the Trump Show. John, welcome to Skullduggery.
3: Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So were you as surprised as a lot of other people were with Trump's announcement yesterday that he's not going to do the convention in Jacksonville?
3: Well, I was, I'm not surprised that they couldn't pull it off. I'm surprised that he came to this realization really as as quickly as he did. You know, I I, I he was so determined to do this. And I, you know, I'd been talking to people at the campaign and they were, you know, talking about how, you know, trying to press them on how many people they thought they could realistically do and, uh, you know, what, how they can get around Florida's rules on this. And the one thing they kept on saying is, well, we'll damn sure have more than Joe Biden. And they were determined that they might not have, you know, much to show for the preceding nights at the convention, but they, they sure seemed determined that they were going to, um, you know, he was determined. He was clinging to this idea when nobody— Thought it was uh, it was going to be realistic. So to see him come out and you know announce it here, you know, a couple weeks ahead of time, I I I was surprised.
2: Well, let me let me just ask a very quick follow up before we get into the book, which is you know he also reversed himself on uh, on the wearing of masks. I mean, he's as far as I know, he's only I don't know if he's worn the mask more than once publicly, but uh, he did it, and he's also you know sort of gotten on board that people ought to wear masks, uh, where he hadn't said that before. So is this a, I guess the question is, is he capable of course corrections? And do you think this is something that he does, you know, three months, three, three and a half months out from an election, and that shows some ability to understand the kind of political challenges he's facing? Or does this in any way um, contradict the basic view that many of us have about Trump, that he just can't do that?
3: he really can't do course corrections. At least he hasn't shown an ability to do course corrections because a course correction for Donald Trump, in his mind, amounts to an admission that the course that he had, that he's correcting from was the wrong course, which in other words means he made a mistake. He did something wrong. Not something uh, that he ever wants to do. In the book, I describe Charlottesville, which was, you know, until 2020, probably the, the low point of Trump's presidency. And how he, you know, he made, if you remember, he did the very fine people on both sides. That was actually the third statement that the third set of remarks he had on Charlottesville. The first set of remarks was one where he simply he suggested that there were basically bad people on both sides. And he failed to call out specifically the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis uh, that were uh, that were leading uh, the protests in Charlottesville. So his advisors convinced him that he needed to come out and make another statement where he would specifically call out the white supremacists and make it absolutely clear that he opposed what they were doing in Charlottesville. So he did it. It's a statement that has basically been forgotten by everybody. You know, it was a teleprompter statement The words were just fine. I mean, they were like what you would expect a president to say after something like Charlottesville happened. And I described the scene where he he gave the remarks at the White House um, in the uh, diplomatic treaty room, I believe it was. And he comes back out and he immediately watches how it plays on cable television. And... He sees CNN and, and MSNBC, basically, commentators are saying it's too little, too late. And Fox describes it just as you just did as a course correction. And he gets infuriated. He yells at John Kelly, who's just the new chief of staff. He says, That's the last time I fucking do that. And there'll be no more course corrections. So, and then the very next day, he does the very fine people on both sides. And, you know, and the rest is history. Everybody forgets that little course correction. So, I. He doesn't, he believes, as you well know, he believes that any admission of doing something wrong, anything resembling an apology is weakness and, and will go nowhere. So, you know, what's he going to do here? I think that this has been driven by a stark political reality, which is the polls and, and his people are, he doesn't have a lot of people around him who really give him bad news, but but they have made it clear that Unless he can convince people he is taking this seriously, the pandemic seriously, he is going to lose. That is absolute reality that even the, some of the sycophants around him are, uh, you know, have, have told him.
0: But, you know, John, I I, I question whether this is going to help him because, you know, the one thing he had going for him and it's it's not as great as he would like it to be is his fired up base that doesn't like to see that admires him because he doesn't show signs of weakness because he stands up to the mainstream media and and the experts and when they see him cave like this, even though it's patently obvious he had to, I just wonder how that's going to play to his strong, to to that base.
3: I mean, you sound like Donald Trump. That's the way he looks at it. Right. right. Yeah. And he, yeah. And, he's, and he probably has a point. I know. I think you're right. I mean, look, let, let's face it. And, and this is how he, this is how he looks at it. A good chunk of his base believes that you know masks are bad that the pandemic has been grossly exaggerated if not entirely made up some actually go so far as to uh, a significant percentage go so far as to think that this is you know all some kind of a scheme to tank the economy so that uh, so that Joe Biden can win so here he comes out and he's suddenly saying the kind of things that maybe Joe Biden would say, wear a mask if you can't socially distance. Uh, I can't hold a convention because it would be sending a bad example and uh, it would be irresponsible. Um, Yeah. So I, I, you know, I'm not sure it is going to help him, but but I'm just telling you that, that his political advisors have told him that unless he turns around his dismal approval rating, on yeah. specifically on dealing with the pandemic, he is certain to and, live.
2: Yeah, and and they are right because the math just does not add up for Donald Trump to win re-election right now. So, but John, let's step back a little bit and um, and start talking about the book. You are one of the few reporters covering Donald Trump, who actually go way back with him, back to the mid-90s when you were a reporter, a, a cub reporter for the New York Post. So tell us how you got to know him and how your kind of relationship evolved and just that, that kind of um, evolution of, of your understanding of, of Donald Trump, and uh, and then we'll get into the, the guts of the book.
3: I, I was a very junior reporter at the New York Post, uh, aspiring political reporter, and, you know, I, I started the, the day before Giuliani got sworn in as mayor for the first time. And uh, general assignment guy, they'd throw me on anything. And, and eventually I got my, you know, within a few months, I got to be basically like the number three guy at City Hall for the number four newspaper in New York. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> But uh, I knew that, you know, I one, one of my um, friends at the time at the Post was a legendary rewrite guy named uh, Bill Hoffman. He, he would have his name on like five or six Stories in the paper on any given day, and he and he was the guy that wrote the uh, best sex I ever had. You know that 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 oh, uh, yeah. front pager, and he would he would constantly, you know, one of his fallback, if he needed something, he'd call Trump. He was he was somebody you know you, you can get you can get a hold of easily. But well, one day, I, I didn't really that was not my beat at all. But you remember uh, Michael Jackson secretly got married to Elvis's daughter to Lisa Marie Presley, <laughs> and uh, they were staring they were staying at Trump Tower. <laughs> They hadn't been seen yet in public, but they were staying at Trump Tower. And, you know, I just want to I want to get a piece in the paper. Right. But I'm working at City Hall. I mean, what the, nobody cares about anything besides this, especially at The New York Post on this day. And I just on a whim, seeing that, that Hoffman had done this kind of stuff, I, I just I looked up the the, the general number because I'd never dialed it before um, to uh, to the Trump organization and asked for Donald Trump. And for first getting through to Norma Federer, his uh, his gatekeeper, he, he got on the phone with me and. I said to him what, what I thought could be. I didn't know him. I was like, you know, he didn't certainly didn't know who I was. I said I want to do a story about why the most famous newlyweds on the planet would want to start their honeymoon at Trump Tower, <laughs> and uh, you know, he he invited me over, and that was the first time I met him. We. Walked around Trump Tower. He, you know, he was he was like a salesman. He was showing me how great this place was, showed me where Michael and Lisa Marie were staying, introduced me to the bodyguards, showed me how they could get out through the basement without being seen by everybody outside. And uh, and from that point on, he was somebody I could call up. And you know, if you slow day, you wanted to, you know, <laughs> I mean, he would say something. I even the other thing I mentioned is I I, I wrote a book back then about the militia movement after the Oklahoma City bombing. And I, uh, I had a book party in New York, uh, which was a small affair because it was, just, you know, like a mass market paper, small book. And I was putting together the invitation and I wanted to have, I was kind of a funny invitation. So I put quotes from some of my friends about how great the book is, you know, and I was like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to call Donald Trump. And, and I, I did. And, and he gave me a quote. Well, actually, he agreed to give me a quote, but he asked me to write it. And then he would approve it, and 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 the quote, which is on the invitation, I still have the original copy of, "What a book! Uh, Jonathan Carl is the best in the business. Tough, fair, and brutally honest." <laughs> Donald J. <You, G>. Trump.
0: <laughs> so you were a you were a ghostwriter for Trump, yes, yes. <laughs> you know. I, I can only imagine if you had stuck with that. Um, oh my god. And, uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> well if he
2: had if if he had yeah. stuck with it, he would probably end up in have ended up in litigation with in Donald prison. Trump. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or in prison, right. yeah. <laughs> right.
0: But so, uh, but oh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. All right. So Trump was a source for you back in your tabloid days at the New York Post. Um and I think you're right, you know, you uh found him entertaining, good copy. You did not see his sinister side yes in those days how did you miss it
3: I, I you know I mean to me he was more like a cartoon character it was it was entertainment you know um and I didn't you know it wasn't like I was doing in-depth reporting on his you know on his business practices or or you know uh, any of that so I, I was probably pretty ignorant of, of much of it in hindsight of course it was you know it was there for a long long time certainly before you know <laughs> Before I first met him
2: but it it does get a little bit you know at the sort of the heart of the paradoxical relationship between the press and uh and Donald Trump, which is a major theme in your book. i think you it's this idea that um he courts you he he courts reporters, he seduces reporters, and then you know they're the enemy of, of the people. I think you refer to it as a kind of a doctor. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde dynamic. What is that all about? What does that say about uh, Donald Trump? Why does he do that? I and mean, what is the impact of it?
3: Well, I mean, he's really a create. I mean, he's, he's a, in some ways kind of a media creation. I mean, his whole brand is built on the, the media coverage that he's gotten over the years and his ability to get excessive coverage. He, you know, he pays more attention to press coverage than any other president we've ever had, certainly anyone I've ever met. I mean, you know, this is a guy who he at one point told me that TiVo uh, is one of the greatest inventions ever, you know, the, 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 the early uh, DVR, because he can watch multiple shows at once. Oh my God, I can watch. Uh... <laughs> so, um, you know, Obama, Bush, they, they could both be, uh, who I covered extensively, Clinton who I covered a little bit, they all could be thin-skinned and get pissed off about coverage and complain that reporters were too negative, or you know, on and on and on. But nobody really consumed so much coverage about himself as Donald Trump. I mean, I I recount this other story that two days before the inauguration, so Trump is still putting together his cabinet. The transition was not exactly smooth, so he still has a lot of uh, a lot of spots to fill in his, in his in his West Wing staff and in his cabinet. He has this biggest speech of his life coming up in two days, and I go on Good Morning America with a little report. Uh, George Stephanopoulos is anchoring, anchoring about how the the Bushes, uh, I think it was George H. W. was back in the hospital, and coming out of my piece on this, I uh, make some crack to George about how, um, you know, he's not going to be coming to the uh, they weren't going to be coming to the inauguration anyway. They they had already said that, and besides, uh, he you know. Bush Sr. wasn't a fan of Donald Trump. He used to throw his shoes at the TV during the primary when he was when he came on the air. Just a little, just a little quip. And um, about uh, two hours later, I get a phone call from Trump, who has Stephanopoulos on the other line. Now, this is obviously he had gone through his Tivos. Now he had gone through the morning shows, and we spent like almost ten minutes on the phone. With him. He calls to you know you say he, he's throwing shoes. Well, did you know? Did you know that he sent me a beautiful letter wishing me luck on my inauguration and telling me he couldn't come? Did you know? Did you would you like to see that? Would you like to see that? So he sends me over this handwritten note, classic, you know, Bush 41 note. But I'm just like, how does this guy have the time to even watch? The television coverage, let alone care yeah. enough to call and get the anchor and the reporter on the phone. And then so, you know, so yes, he beats up on the press. He we, we are traitors, we are awful human beings, we are terrible, we make everything up, we're liars, we're fake news, and he spends a good chunk of his day watching and reading everything that we report. And
0: and yet and, and yet, and and, yet. Doesn't read his daily intelligence brief, as we learned recently in the uh, Russian bounty story, which was in the in the intelligence brief. And Trump never actually read it. So. I think, I think
3: he spends more time with the network morning shows, and, and certainly if you throw in the cable morning shows, than he does with his PDB, yes.
0: So I want to I wanna ask you, two scenes in your book leapt out at me, because they're kind of like bookends, and they, they go together, and I want to talk about them. And, you know, we've all gotten used to Trump saying things that simply aren't true, that don't check out, that are either gross exaggerations or just flatly false and you've got one exchange early on from the white house press briefing he's having a press conference and he says he won the biggest electoral college landslide since ronald reagan And uh, one of your colleagues, Peter Alexander of NBC News, contradicts him and points out that, in fact, Obama got more electoral votes than him in 2008. And then Trump says, well, I'm talking about Republicans. And then Alexander points out that George H.W. Bush got more electoral votes when he won. And Trump just retreats to, well, you know, this is what they told me. And Alexander asks the pointed question, why should Americans trust you when you have accused the information they receive of being fake when you're providing information that's fake? Kind of a rather pointed, but uh, on, on point question. And, you know, one can sort of dismiss that. Oh, it's, you know, who cares what the electoral college numbers were? I mean, he was after all elected president. So, you know, the guy likes to exaggerate. But then you go, much further in the book towards the end when you're asking the question of mick mulvaney about whether trump withheld funding from ukraine and why he did so which was at the core of the entire impeachment debate right the democrats accused him of withholding funds unless they did, unless the Ukrainians did what he wanted them to do, which was launch these investigations into Biden and the DNC server. And Mulvaney admits it. He admits it flat out. He says, absolutely no question about it. This is in response to your question. That's why we held up the money, because that Trump wanted them to investigate corruption related to the DNC server. Now, there you had... An absolute confession to the very charge the Democrats were making, and it was the quid pro quo and you know to me, like wow, <laughs> there it was, admitted, and you know everybody just moved on well
3: uh there's there's another thing that happened about five or six hours later, <laughs> which is the White House put out a statement from Mulvaney Mulvaney. Saying that he didn't say what he said, I mean, it, it's it it was just it's a truly amazing statement because he just denies saying what he said on live television. I mean, it's there in front of the cameras
2: well, john, and and that gets at one of the I think most important themes of your book, which is this, you know, as you put it, uh, his ass- Trump's assault on the truth. And, you know, it's Trump himself, but he also has a lot of aiders and abettors. You know, toward the end of of your book, you you sound pretty concerned that the way Trump kind of undermines the truth and facts um, is uh, really dangerous for our democracy in the in the long term. What do you think the impact long term is going to be? Because the other way of looking at it is that Trump you know, Trump is a, is a symptom of the disease, and th- these are trends that have ha- been happening in, in American democracy for a long time in this age of kind of conspiracy theories and, and disinformation. First of all, talk about the impact that you think it's having, and then if you can kind of disentangle Trump from the sort of larger things that are happening in, in, in American culture and society in this regard.
3: Well, I think he's an accelerant, a, a, a major accelerant to, to a trend that, that was here before him and, and he didn't create. You know, this idea, I mean, first of all, what what, what he has done is he has made it so a, a good chunk of this country right now will not believe anything that comes out of the White House, which is really troubling, especially when you are in a, a pandemic. You need to be able to trust what you are hearing from official sources, maybe trust but verify. But you need to know. That when you're getting information that can literally affect life and death, that the information is accurate. And, you know, because of his kind of serial telling of untruths, which has been also as you know, we've seen from many of the people that work for him, you start questioning any information that comes out of the the executive branch. That's that's a major problem. The other problem is that he has in such a sustained way waged a campaign against uh, real news as fake news against real reporting against you know basically describing anything that comes out of an independent press uh, that is critical of him as as being made up not true is uh, traitorous treasonous. So you have you know another chunk of the country maybe it's a third of the country that won't believe anything they see on the uh, in a newspaper or on a on a television newscast.
0: Yeah, I want to ask you about that, John, because you have uh, some pointed words for some of your colleagues as well here. And I'm just reading from um, your introduction. But the president's war on the truth is just one side of the story. While there's been no shortage of great reporting in the Trump era, all too often reporters and news organizations have aided and abetted the effort to undermine the free press by openly displaying how much they detest this president. We are not the opposition party, but that is the way some of us have acted, doing as much to undermine the credibility of the free press as the president's taunts.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, he, he, a major—he's not a strategic guy, and I, I think that Trump is not particularly strategic about anything. Uh, he, he goes by gut. But he is—if there is anything he's strategic about, it is the idea that if you can portray the press as the resistance party, uh, as the opposition, then, then people won't believe. Uh, the, the press won't have—the you know the articles that are critical of him won't have any more credibility than a press release from the DNC. So he's been he's been blatant about this, you know, Bannon coined the, the term you are the opposition party and Trump has repeated it a thousand times. The press is the opposition party. And we we cannot, you know, and, and, and I, I just fear that the coverage has often played into that. Now, when you're in a place where we're at now, I mean, it's a real dilemma because it's like there's so much coming out of him directly that is just not true you know I mean how you know you, you have to report the facts and when the facts are that the president you know is is not being truthful you know and you reporting that fact you may appear to be an opposition party but you're reporting the truth but you know look for three and a half years if at any given point you tuned in to um, to cable television, maybe even if you looked at some of my, my stories as well I mean you, you'd, you'd think, you know, oh, my God, look at the the, the tone, the thrust of the coverage is look at the insane thing he just did now. Can you believe what he just did now? Mm -hmm. Look how awful this is. And you often can't distinguish between the really important things like what Mulvaney said in that briefing room and the stuff that's a little more trivial. You know, did he did he say the the hurricane was going to hit Alabama when it wasn't? But it's all covered in that same breathless. You know, look at look at the horrific thing he did right now. And, you know, until 2020, I think I don't know, I think you can make a case that he didn't he didn't make a mistake that was anywhere near as consequential as George Bush's mistake to invade Iraq over weapons of mass destruction that were not there. (laughs) But the coverage was, you know, far more intense than 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 what Bush uh, sustained until deep into his presidency.
2: Well, let's talk about something that I think most people would consider really important and consequential, and that is this sort of soft spot he seems to have for white supremacists and white nationalists. I mean, continually saying things and you know ret- retweeting racists that open him up to plausible accusations that he himself is a is a bona fide racist. What do you what do you make of that side of Trump? What have you? concluded uh, about that. And in talking about that, talk about that kind of chilling anecdote that you unearthed. This goes back to Charlottesville, where he, you know, seemed uh, genuinely angry at the way that protesters were being treated and um, kind of laudatory t- toward Confederate generals.
3: This is this is right before he gives that, that second now forgotten statement, where he actually condemns the white supremacist, reads the teleprompter. But he's in a private meeting in the residence of the White House. He's actually sitting at a desk. It was a table for uh, – it, it's a desk that he had – a table he had converted into a desk. But it was basically – it was the table that Ulysses S. Grant used for his cabinet meeting. So he's at Grant's table and he's praising the Confederate generals because, of course, you know Lee's, uh, Lee's statue is, is, is the issue in Charlottesville taking down uh, Robert E. Lee's statue. He says, Robert E. Lee – Stonewall, Jackson, these were some of the greatest military minds in history. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? And this is, you know, and he's ranting about how these these people protesting the removal of those statues. It's really quite a foreshadowing, isn't it? You know, we're treated so, are, are being treated so unfairly. But I've been thinking a lot about, and by the way, that scene was so, and I, I, I talked to three people that were in the meeting one of them shared notes that were taken contemporaneously with me of that meeting and had never been reported before. And it's it's astounding because this is basically he is telling his top advisors, including Kelly. Uh, Tom Bossert was in there. Christopher Ray was in there. Jeff Sessions is in there. And he's basically saying exactly what he would say the next day about very fine people being on both sides. And nobody calls him out. Nobody is willing to say, you know what? Somebody just got killed by a white supremacist. The world just saw people with tiki torches chanting Jews will not replace us, this is not the time to talk about how the protesters are being treated unfairly. This is the time to condemn what the world just saw. But I've been thinking a lot about David Duke, who endorsed Trump uh, before the Louisiana primary in, in 2016. And reporters were were like hounding Trump to condemn david duke and to disavow that endorsement and eventually he did but it's so half-hearted you know first if you remember there was a time where he there was one time where he basically pretended like he didn't really know who david duke was and then there's there's another time where he uh when, when he disavows he says, i disavow okay i disavow yeah. satisfied i disavow yeah. and what i thought at the time was does he think that because david duke had obviously you know been a successful in Republican primaries himself in Louisiana, does he, in the back of his mind, think that he's gonna lose votes if he disavows David Duke? And this latest series of inexplicable things that he has said in the wake of, of, of George Floyd's killing makes you wonder, is he, is he just afraid that he's gonna alienate a chunk of his base? Does he, does he think that there's a significant chunk of his base that is basically white supremacist. And is that why he's unwilling
2: to... And it's all kind of, it's all transactional. He doesn't actually have convictions about this, that he's not a kind of a deep-seated racist in the way that we think of, you know, someone who belongs to to David Duke or, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Uh, But it's it's entirely about the impact that it's going to have on his electoral uh, chances. That's what you're saying.
3: Yeah, I think so. And I also, you know, another, um, I think it was Bannon who said... uh, at one point that um, Trump is Bunker, you know, he's Archie Bunker. So he does have that kind of Archie Bunker uh, men- mm-hmm. mentality uh, as opposed to a David Duke mentality. you got an Archie Bunker mentality. But I think that part of it he's thinking, you know, how's this going to affect me?
2: I mean, remember, he did. I mean, on the other side of this, he did take this, the uh, Central Park Five ad out in The New York Times yep. calling for them to get the death penalty before he was running for office. So it's complicated.
0: By the way, you mentioned Bannon. Uh, Trump kind of hinted, I think it was during the uh, Chris Wallace interview, that Bannon is is his back. And I've been wondering, like all this China bashing we've seen speech after speech from Pompeo, Barr and others. I wonder how much of that is being driven by Bannon, who, you know, clearly saw Creating China as a foil as a uh, as a major electoral strategy. Yeah.
2: Hey, um, um, I got one last question because I know I know we got to let John go, but I wanted to ask you. You know, there's there has been a lot of talk these days, uh, and not just from the fringes, that it, if Trump loses, particularly in a close election, maybe one decided by mail-in votes, that he will dispute the results, uh, claim the election was fraudulent, and refuse to leave office in in defiance of the Constitution. Is that plausible to you at all?
3: I, I don't think so. Based on my observations of him, I, I, I do not think that— I, I mean, I, I don't doubt that he may make a lot of noise and he may yeah. make you want to be fearful that that's what he would do. But I think ultimately, you know, he goes back to Mar-a-Lago and, um, you know— yeah. I, So I—, I yeah yeah, yeah. He, I, I mean he's yeah. already talking he's already making excuses for losing right I mean he's yeah. already you know saying they're gonna steal it and all that but he's not gonna hold I, so I asked one of his top former advisors that very question You know what you know do you think there's any chance he would he would refuse to leave and this uh, this top former advisor said, uh, you know we have we have people there are people who will quietly escort him out uh, and then, and then he added <laughs> he can, He he added he he could chain himself to the Resolute desk and they'll quietly go in and clip out the chains and take him out. (laughs) It's not going to come to
0: that. On that on that uh, encouraging note about the strength of our constitutional democracy, (laughs) um, I think that's a a good point to uh, end on. Jonathan Carl, author of Front Row at the Trump Show. Thanks for joining us on Skullduggery.
3: Thank you.
2: Thanks to political consultant and strategist James Carville and ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Karl for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you soon.